This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Now, I, I have these bios printed out, and both of these humble, gracious women have directed me not to read them. <laughs> so I, I won't, and I guess neither of them really need introduction. So we'll just get right to it. And what, we, what I do want to say, just kind of programmatically, is that I have a very few questions for both of them. Because we do want to open it up to Q&A, but we don't have much time. And so we'll probably only be able to take maybe three questions or so. But then Professor Davis and Sidra Smith will both be in the lobby for the general reception. Professor Davis will be signing books there. So you'll have a further opportunity to at least meet her and, and say hello. Okay? All right. So let me start with Sidra Smith, producer extraordinaire. <laughs> And I wondered if you would tell us the story of, of how this film came to be um, with special attention to your role as, as producer. And how did you get Jada Pinkett Smith involved? How did that all happen? Wow. <laughs> well, for one, you know, as you all know, Shala Lynch was the writer, uh, director, and one of the producers of the film. And she couldn't be here today, but Shala, hi. Shout out. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, it took Shala about seven years working on this film by herself, like from researching footage, coming up with the story, interviewing Angela and all the people in the film. And after Shala finished her first cut of the film, she called and said, OK, I've got the first cut done and I don't know what to do with it. You know, so she came over to my house literally with her Mac computer and sat that thing on my table and we watched it. And at that point, I knew that we needed a lot of help in order to get this film out there. So the first person that I called was uh, Jada. And I knew Jada was, you know, all about women of color, you know, in the arts and produ production and was a huge fan of Angela Davis's. So I'm like, this is the only person I know who's going to respond to this the way I need her to, because this project has to be seen. So literally, Jada looked at it and was like, OK, what do we let's let's make it happen. And she you know, put her team together over at Overbrook Entertainment, you know, Paris Salinas and Miguel Melendez, and we all came up with a great yes, strategy. Yes. And yeah, and Paris is in the house. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Jada, you know, went over, you know, went to Will and, and Jay-Z, and she knew we would need a gangster tribe to, <laughs> to get this out. And we all came up with a strategy and a plan, and we went to town. You sure did. You know, and, and really, it, it took a lot of work, and it's still a lot of work, you know, because as a producer, you know, the filmmaker has those years of, you know, creating the story, and then there's this whole back end. You know, you have to sell it. And believe it or not, when we first started putting the film out there, we couldn't find a distributor. You know, it took me, Jada, her team, all of us really working hard to find the right distributor. And thank God we came across Lionsgate, uh, a guy named Jeff Clanagan at Code Black Lionsgate, and he got it. He got the film. He was passionate about the story. 
and we all strategized on the release and made it happen. That is wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> yes. Professor Davis, we, I wondered what you learned from this project. Well, I, um, I don't think I really expected to learn very much uh, because uh, I thought that it might be a good idea to make a film like this, not so much because of me and my story, but because young people today um, might possibly be inspired by seeing a, a struggle uh, several decades ago that uh, was um, a struggle against the most powerful forces in the world. Um, you know, even though I was um, innocent, uh, everyone assumed that it was impossible to win. But because this movement developed all over the country, all over the world, across racial boundaries, across uh, national boundaries, we won. So I thought that that would be an important um, story to tell today. And then, when I actually saw the first cut of the film, I realized that there were aspects of that story that I did not even know. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I never knew how it was that the FBI actually caught me. <laughs> All I knew was that they found me and they arrested me, but I didn't know the story until Charlotte interviewed one of the FBI agents who arrested me. So the first time I saw that film, I was sitting there with my mouth wide open. I said, oh my God. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, 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 I learned a lot. And, and, and in a lot of ways, it was difficult revisiting uh, um, very painful moments. Uh, but at the same time, it's been inspiring for me because I try to continue this work. And uh, you have to find sources of inspiration everywhere. And this is yet another source of inspiration. One of the things that came up for me as I watched this film was the pursuit by the United States of Asada Shakur. And I wondered if you could reflect with us about what it means for this woman to be resurrected in some ways, but in a particular way that's about terrorism, um, and on what that means now, ideologically and historically as well. Yeah. Um, it is... Um, it's really... Uh, quite amazing that in the 21st century you have uh, with whole recent history of the so-called war against terrorism uh, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and so forth the Islamophobia that has uh, 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 relied on the histories of racism and, and, and you know one might say that uh, Islamophobia is now the 
the, the, the most uh, powerful example of the way in which histories of racism can be constantly redeployed. Um, and then the, the FBI decides to put Asata Shakur on their 10 most wanted terrorist lists. You know, this is, this is a woman who has been hounded uh, uh, since, she was, uh, since she was quite young and has been forced into exile and was leading a very productive life in Cuba when uh, the, well, there's a history of this uh, uh, hounding by the FBI, uh, the million dollar reward that was placed on her a few years ago, and now that uh, recently back in May, that reward was uh, increased by a million dollars, so it's a two million dollar reward, which means that any mercenary, and of course Blackwater and all of the you know, privatized uh, uh, war uh, machine uh, uh, mercenaries uh, can go to Havana and wherever and kidnap her and bring her back to, the, to this country. And so you ask, why? What's the point? You know, Asata is 68 years old. Why? And it occurred to me, thinking back on the period when I was placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted criminals list, and I asked myself, you know, why, why are they doing this? Obviously, you know, I'm not that dangerous. You know, sometimes maybe I wished I were more dangerous than I really was, but uh, uh, um, it occurred to me at one point then that it was not about me. It was really not at all about me. I was an easy target. It was about uh, attacking an entire movement. Uh, and one of the things that happened when the FBI was looking me, they arrested hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of black women. I still encounter black women today who tell me that uh, they were arrested because uh, they, the police said they looked like me. You know, it was like, so I realized that it was a way of, um, of, of terrorizing, literally terrorizing uh, people who otherwise uh, would want to identify with the movement for justice and equality. And, and I think it's the same thing with Asata. You know, she unfortunately is the immediate target, but by placing her on the 10 most wanted terrorist list, that was a message that was uh, 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 designed to uh, make young people today less enthusiastic about doing the work that needs to be done today. And thinking about what it means to designate someone as a terrorist, I've heard you say in some in different places that actually, you know, as we, we think about terrorists being secured somewhere in a place that makes us safer, like prisons or you know, uh, 
um, that actually the, the mechanisms of terror that are already embedded in the system and deployed by the system are really the worst ones. They're, they're already there, always there. And so I, I wondered if you might help us to understand why the carceral system as a whole is not just a question of prisoners' rights or those people who are hounded, such as Asada Shakur, but also of everyone's experience of democracy. Well, that's a really good example. But, but first, I, I've been thinking about um, the terrorism that is so much a part of the history of this country that is not acknowledged as terrorism. This is the 50th anniversary of, uh, for example, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist uh, Church and the killing of uh, you know, four young black girls on September 15th, 1963. And it's interesting that everyone knew who was responsible for bombing that church. It took, it took decades before they even filed charges against the Ku Klux Klan, Klan's person. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, he had a nickname, Dynamite Bob. And he was responsible for the bombings of so many homes and churches in the black community from the late 1940s throughout the 50s and the 60s. I mean, that was terrorism. And there's no attempt to acknowledge the extent to which the history of this country uh, uh, is very much infected with uh, what they like to call domestic terrorism. You know, but you might say the domestic terrorism became a model for uh, a different kind of terrorism. Uh, 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 but I think you're right about the the. Uh, prison system, uh, institutionalizing uh, uh, terrorism, uh, the kind of state terrorism that is uh, uh, connected with the, the, the torture that happens as a matter of course. Uh, and we don't think as much as we should about the relationship between institutional modes of violence, institutional modes of terror, and the terror uh, that uh, we attribute to individuals. Sidra, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what it means to produce a film, and especially this film, but also what it means to be a woman of color producer in this context. <laughs> well, you know, first, I think that uh, it's so important, you know, for us to tell our stories. And the thing that I really admire about Shala is that she is truly motivated to tell our stories about women of color. You know, there aren't a lot of opportunities out there for us to tell our stories. So when you have a project, a good project that tells a good story, do whatever you can in order to push that project forward. I mean, the bottom line, being a producer means finding the best partners you can <laughs> to help make that project happen. You know, and I just think that uh, the best thing that a woman of color can do for another woman of color in this business is help them. 
you know, help them. Right. <laughs> you know, you. it's like so many times in this business, you know, you have all kinds of people calling you and needing and, you know, you just never know what a phone call or, you know, just returning an email or sending out a tweet, <laughs> you know, might do. But, yeah, but we have to help each other, you guys, you know, and make, our, and make ourselves parts of great gangster tribes. <laughs> <laughs> this is my last question. Professor Davis, uh, you've written about the importance of the 14th Amendment and the significance of abolition democracy, which is a political perspective that refuses to accept nominal freedom, but instead calls for, demands the recognition of full equality and um, black humanity, uh, everyone's humanity. So, but today, freedom is so troubled. It's so troubled and um, I wondered if you could talk about some of the biggest threats to freedom today and what the legacy of abolition democracy can hold for a generation that grew up not defined by seeing freedom movements, but instead by the conservative backlash against them. Who? <laughs> How long do we have this evening? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a great question. It's it's a complicated question, and maybe I'll I, I have to look at my watch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we have yeah very little time. So. Okay, very Sorry. little time. So I have to abbreviate. <laughs> yeah. uh, so let me say, you mentioned the um, the the Fourteenth Amendment, Thirteenth Amendment, of course. Um, uh, I, th- you know, what we well, first of all. It has been pointed out uh, by a number of scholars, uh, Orlando Patterson, for example, that, uh, that the very idea of freedom uh, was probably invented by a slave. The very notion of freedom. Is it possible to imagine uh, a freedom except as the aspiration or the yearning of someone who has so deeply experienced unfreedom. Um, and, and then I would say, uh, given the fact that we're, we're, we're observing all of these anniversaries, the 50th anniversary of all of the civil rights uh, struggles, the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation uh, Proclamation, and or we haven't really been observing. We we haven't had any major national observances of the uh, uh, well, sesquicentennial of the Emancipation Proclamation, have we? Um, and so I've come to the conclusion that it is because uh, that might initiate a set of conversations that might lead us to recognize that um, that slavery was never really abolished. It was never fully abolished. And that therefore there's a, a continuity, there's a continuum uh, that uh, we're still uh, uh, pursuing 
in the 21st century. Uh, uh, and certainly the fact that there are 2.5 million people behind bars is an example of uh, the extent to which we're haunted uh, by uh, the, the past. Uh, Michelle Alexander uh, points out in her work that there are more black men in prison and under the control of criminal justice systems today than there were enslaved in 1850. And that's a pretty dramatic uh, uh, um, statistic, isn't it? Um, and I guess I would say that I have to wind up now. <laughs> I'm just getting started, right? <laughs> I'm just at the beginning. But I suppose what I would say is that we have to beware of all of the closures uh, that are offered to us. Uh, Yes, it's been 50 years since we um, achieved um, victories in the civil rights movement. It's 50 years of freedom. Uh, uh, so how, how do we um, find a way to continue those struggles without making these assumptions that all of that can be relegated to the past? Uh, I, I think that's that's the the most one of the most important tasks uh, today, and especially for people who have not who did not experience that era, who kind of think about it. Oh, that's just history. Uh, 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 what was his name? Emmett Till. I mean, one of these days, somebody's going to be saying, "Well, what was his name? Trayvon Martin." You know, there's so many examples of the uh, continuity that exists, which ought to call forth a continuity of struggle. Very nicely abbreviated. Thank you. <laughs> We'd like to open it up to questions. We've got very, we, we really wanted to wrap up by, by 9.30, so we'll really probably only be able to take a couple. If you raise your hand... Matt Renner, who is running this theater and is doing so in an extraordinary way, will bring you the mic. Hi, Angela. Thank you so much, and thank all of the filmmakers. The film was just uh, wonderful. I'm thinking about your trial then, and I'm thinking about the criminal justice system as it exists today. I'm wondering... You know, I realized after your trial, you know, there was a real rev up of mass incarceration, war on drugs, and, and the building, prison boom, and all of that. But I'm wondering what it might have looked like today if you'd have been on, on trial. If what? If you'd have been on trial today oh. in the 21st century, what that might look like. Wow, I don't even want to think about that. Uh, wow. <laughs> but but uh, what I can say is that uh, from the vantage point of the current moment, the organizing that was done was absolutely amazing. I mean, there was no Facebook, right? <laughs> There was no email. 
You know, there was no, it wasn't even possible to make long distance calls because they were so expensive. And to think about, to think that there were, were, were uh, campaigns and movements in India and, and, and um, New Zealand and, well, of course, all over Europe, you saw that, uh, uh, in, uh, in Palestine. I mean, that was so amazing. As a matter of fact, I recently traveled to Palestine, well, two summers ago. And I, I said that uh, one of the things that, that really moved me when I was in jail um, was uh, the messages that I received from people, and especially messages from prisoners. I received a lot of uh, letters from prisoners. And I remember a, a, a solidarity message from... Um, Palestinian political prisoners who had to, it was written on a scrap of paper, uh, a really beautiful message and signatures, and it was smuggled out of an Israeli prison. It was given to someone who then uh, brought it to the U.S. and gave it to someone who kind of smuggled it in to me so I could see it. Uh, and, then, and then I met this... Um, older man uh, in Jerusalem who said, who said that he heard me he heard that I had told this story about receiving a message from political prisoners in Palestine and he said I just want you to know that I was one of the prisoners who signed that message and it was just so amazing to see that both of us are still involved in struggles for justice uh, today and that you know we could embrace each other across uh, all kinds of borders, temporal and um, you know, uh, political and cultural. So uh, that you know, I think that's an important message for today. Um, there, you know, there are a lot of people who are still in prison today, so I don't even think we have to go to imagining what it would be like uh, to have a case today, because Mumia Abu-Jamal is still behind bars, uh, and Lynette Peltier, who is one of the longest-held political prisoners in this country, is behind bars. So we, we should think about how to use the amazing um, communicative technologies that exist in order to guarantee that uh, uh, people who shouldn't be in prison today are freed, and not only political prisoners, because we, you know, we were talking about the um, the politics of, of of mass incarceration and the prison and industrial complex. So there's a lot of work that we need to do um, today. But thank you. Quite what they used to be, but that is Sister Burton. Is that correct? Is that Sister Burton who asked? And this woman does an incredible project in Los Angeles that is a transition program for women who have come out of prison, who are looking for housing, for bus fare, for education, for safety. So if we could just give her a round of applause, please. And if you Thank follow- you so much, Susan, for your, your work. Uh, 
Yeah, you are a model for people, you know, all over the country, all over the world. One more, I think, and there he is. Hi, um, thank you very much for coming to the university. I very much appreciate it. Um, all of all of you for coming together. Um, my question was in regards to um, presenting ideologies that are outside of the binary view of Democrat, Republican, especially when talking about uh, votes of color. Um, communities of color are poised to outnumber uh, white voters, especially in California. And there's a highly contentious atmosphere for their votes. How do we move the conversation outside of binary politics and into a maximization of uh, rights, a maximization of privileges, and, and, and getting to be in touch with our society in a more real way, as opposed to just being relegated to roles that are described to us? Another really big question. <laughs> but, you know, um, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about the, the need to break out of the uh, two-party system. And I, um, I think I've only voted for, Democrat, for a candidate of one of those two parties twice in my life. <laughs> Because I've always been a believer in independent politics, and I even have run for office on the Communist Party ticket. And so I've always voted communist or peace and freedom or green. Or, um, but, you know, one of the things I would say is that uh, the last election, I think, was even more important than the first Obama election. Uh, of course, the first election was, it was, that was historic, right? And there was this global euphoria. And somehow for a moment, people believe that there was um, a way to, you know, end the terrible oppressions around the world. And, it was a moment of promise. Of course, most of those people forgot that, that all we had done was to elect another president of the imperialist United States of America, right? <laughs> you know, but still, but still, it's important to remember that moment because it was a moment of such great promise, a moment when we felt connected with people all over the world. So let's not forget that. Uh, the last election was important because um, the Republicans really thought they were going to win. <laughs> you know, they really did. As a matter of fact, Romney hadn't even written a uh, a concession speech. You remember how long we had to wait? Forever for them to come out. Uh, and I know I, I've, I've been saying that this last time I refused to go to sleep until I heard the concession because I remember the one, uh, which one was that? That was two, that was, no, no, I'm talking about when, when we thought, Gore, we went to bed and we thought Gore was the president. Remember that? 
but, um, but what was so important about that election was that given all of the efforts to prevent people from voting, people said, we will challenge you. We will resist. If, it, if we have to stand up and wait in line for three hours, we will do it, or four hours, or five hours. In some places, I think people stood in line for six or seven or eight hours. And that was amazing. I know it's still the two-party system. But I think we learned something about the people of this country. We also learned that um, the time when white men, straight, rich, white men could dictate the future of this country, that's no more. No more. No more. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the, you know, the most powerful uh, voting block was women of color. If you look at who voted against the Republicans and voted for Obama, of course, but uh, uh, in, greatest, in the greatest numbers, it was women of color. So to me, that's, that's, that's important, not so much for the electoral system or the two-party system, but it, 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 it gives us a sense of the potential that exists in this country. And I think that uh, you're absolutely right. We need, uh, we need another political party. You know, we need a party that's going to be a labor party, that is going to be anti-racist, that is going to be feminist. We need all of that. That is the real future of this country, it seems to me. Okay. To have had you Can, both here to think with us, now? to be present is with us. Oh. We are so grateful. Thank you both very much. Oh, look at that. drinks of many kinds, and books by Professor Davis in the library, and, and the library, in the lobby, and Granada Books will be selling them, which is a new independent bookstore owned by Sharon Hoshida, so please support. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.